Well, good morning again. Thank you. If you have a Bible, if you will open it up to 1 John, we're continuing our series in 1 John called Certainty. And if you want to follow in one of the black Bibles, you'll see under the chairs, we'll be on page 1022 in the black Bible. We're starting chapter 3 this week in 1 John. As we've looked at the, the book of 1 John, we've talked about the theme of certainty, that there are false teachers that have gone out of the community that John is writing to, and they've stirred up confusion. Uh, they've caused people to doubt. And so John is giving the people certainty, saying, our faith is certain, Jesus is certain, this truth is real. And so those people that would say that you can follow this teaching and still sin, well, that doesn't add up. And so John would turn uh, the faith from different directions, look at it through different lenses. We use the artwork here of head, heart, and hands to show that if, if you have a true faith, a certain faith in Jesus, that it will look right, it will uh, act right, it will feel right as you turn it and look at it from these different directions. Uh, you can't say that you have faith but not love people. You can't say that you have faith but not practice righteousness. He says it's got to be coherent. It's got to hang together. This week, we're calling it Certain Father because in a world that's shifting and changing and everything's upside down, he's going to anchor us in the certainty of our Father. Now, some of us, our earthly fathers have not been reliable, and so this might be a stretch for you. I want you to know that you're prayed for, and I want you to know that as you look at this idea of our Heavenly Father being reliable, what it helps us to understand is it doesn't matter what our earthly father was like. If he was certain or uncertain, if he was reliable or unreliable, we know we can be rooted in the reliability of our Heavenly Father. And so John's going to encourage us in that this morning. If you'll follow along with me, we're going to really focus on chapter 3, but I want to read the last two verses from last week because they kind of flow together. Uh, starting in verse 28 of chapter 2, it says, And now little children abide in him, so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. So that's the certain proof. Uh, doing righteous things shows you were born of this heavenly father. So chapter 3, he says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure." Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this is it, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother." 
Let me pray and ask God to help us. God, we thank you for your word and we come in trust, sometimes shaken, sometimes unsure of what you're saying. And so we ask that you would teach us. We ask that your spirit would help us to understand you, to see what you're saying and to be changed. We pray that you would meet us here and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I still remember uh, the first time I became a father, the birth of my first child. It was a a tremendous emotional event. Um, It's just so awesome to hold your child for the first time. I don't know how many of you are fathers and have had that experience, but just this pride, uh, this love, this incredible, uh, just overwhelming feeling of she's mine or he's mine. Maybe the first time you adopted a child and, and brought them home, the first time a child was born in the hospital, whatever that might have looked like, you just have this incredible love for your child. I've, I've had that experience. It's an incredible experience. Some of you may not have had that experience, um, and some of you may not have had the experience or have maybe questioned your history when it comes to your father's own love for you. Maybe your father wasn't there for you. Maybe you felt let down by your father. I, I want to encourage you that we know what a father is supposed to be like. So, so if you have pain in your life, if you were let down by your earthly father, it's because you know what a father is supposed to be like. And the scriptures continue to repoint us back to our heavenly father as the one that shows us as the standard for this is what a father is supposed to be like. This is what love really is. And so we're challenged to, to redirect our thoughts, whether we had an awesome father or a a weak and broken father, a father that just wasn't there at all, we're challenged to look back to our heavenly father and to take hope in him, to see him as that fixed point, as that foundation, that structure that we need in our life when everything else is uncertain, that he is certain, that he is reliable. His love is transforming then in our life. Jesus talks about this in Matthew and in Luke. There's a parallel passage in Matthew 7. He says, If you then, talking to regular folks like us, he says, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So Jesus is saying, you know, common sense tells you that a dad knows how to bless his kids. That's just common sense. But Jesus gives us a caveat and he says, but you know what? We're evil and wicked. If we have some vague idea of what that's supposed to look like, how much more will our Heavenly Father know how to be generous, know how to be gracious? And so that's what John is helping us focus on here in in 1 John 3, that we have this Heavenly Father that loves us. So the first thing I want us to really soak in is that your Father loves you. You have to hear that, and we have to be told that again and again. I struggled as I was um, coming up with a way to kind of summarize this point, the first section of our Uh, scripture this morning because it felt like I've said this too many times before and this eternal internal dialogue um, because I like to be creative I don't like to say things the same way twice it's just kind of the way God's wired me I like to come up with new ways to say things and and I felt like well we say that a lot and it it struck me that that there's not really another way to say it right that that that's what the text is saying verse one is saying get a grip on the love that your father has for you you need to soak that in. Martin Luther says that uh, we have to beat the gospel into our brains continually. That, 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 that we just we have to do that. And so sometimes we might feel like, oh, I've heard that before. 
Oh, he said that before. But I just want to let you know, you need to hear it again. And so I'm going to keep saying it over the years at this church until you believe it, right? Or until you run away screaming, one or the other, okay? But you're just going to have to hear it again and again. We have to hear it. I have to hear it. We have to be convinced and reconvinced that our Heavenly Father loves us. And we just have to beat it into our brains continually. We're not going to let go of this. 1 John 3, 1 says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. He says the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. So that feeling of we're disconnected from other people, we're not like other people, or there's some problem, there's some conflict, he's saying that conflict's based not on the fact that your father doesn't love you, but on the fact that your father does love you. That's going to cause problems, that's going to cause a difference, that's going to cause a distinction that makes us uncomfortable at times, but don't doubt your father's love for you, Right? I mean, they've had this big blow-up. They've had false teachers go out. Their community's been turned upside down. He's saying, don't, don't think it's because the Father doesn't love you. Know that the Father loves you. And that love is going to separate you. That love is going to change you. That love is going to cause conflict sometimes with other people. But be sure of the Father's love for you. Don't doubt that part. Know that the Father loves you. It, it, the, this word love is agape in Greek. And a lot of you probably heard this before if you've been in churches before, but for some of you, this will be new. There's, there's multiple words for love in Greek. And so in English, we just say love, but it's all these different words, right? So you've heard me talk about this when I talk about marriage. Women are never commanded to love their husbands. There's one verse in Titus 2 um, where it says that older women should teach younger women to love their husbands, but really it's that word phileo, right? We get Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. So that word phileo really just means brotherly love or like. Right? So, so women, the closest thing to love you're ever commanded to is to just like your husbands, okay? So that's a reminder to you young women, to work at that, okay? Just like them, okay? Think they're cool. But, but here, th- this is a different word here. This is agape. Agape. You've probably heard that before. There's churches that'll call themselves agape, right? And what this is, is it's this unconditional love, right? So you've got Phileo, it's his brotherly love. You've got storge, it's kind of kindness and affection. You've got eros, which is erotic love. And then here you've got agape. You've got unconditional. I'm, I'm going to bind myself to you no matter what. God has that kind of love for us. He adopts us as his child. There's this great little phrase here in uh, this translation, ESV, it says, see what kind of love the Father has. The King James, you would hear, behold. Does that sound familiar? Behold what manner of love the Father has for us. Have you all ever heard that before? It's an old 80s praise song, too. We sing that. I won't sing it for you. Don't worry. But uh, in the Greek, there's actually a word there, right? It, it's idu. And so when I was learning to translate Greek, you would always have to come up with some way to say that. And it comes across awkward in English because we just don't use that kind of phrase very often in English. Um, But it's very common, especially in ancient Greek, even farther back before the Bible. And so it's basically just a phrase that says, pay attention. I mean, it's literally look or behold or see. And so it's kind of like he's saying, hey, pay attention, pay attention. Look, the Father loves you. That's what he's saying here. Behold, look at that. The Father loves you. A lot of times it's used in ancient Greek to introduce like a story. Um, Kind of the way we would say like or and then this happened, or, you know, you would have this kind of little introductory phrases that you would use in English, and that's here, they would say, look, look at what happened. The Father loves you. Pay attention. See this. See this. The Father loves you. 
See what kind of love the Father has given to us? That we should be called children of God. That's crazy. That's nuts that we would be called children of God. That's the kind of love he has for us. That's the kind of unconditional love that he binds himself to us and says, you're my child. I love you. I delight in you. I have a picture here of a father snuggling a baby so that you would get this picture in your mind. Um, If you had uh, difficult family relationships in your background, you have to push those pictures out and pull in the pictures of the truth of a God who delights in you, who loves you. We saw the theological term for this a couple of weeks ago in propitiation, which is this big word that means that God likes you. He likes you, okay? He's bound himself to you in unconditional love. He's made you his child, not because of how awesome you were, but because of how gracious he is. He loves you. And he did the work to adopt you by giving his son Jesus to take your sin upon himself and give you the righteousness of Jesus by faith. Jesus became your substitute. Jesus became your propitiation so that God smiles on you, delights in you. What are the, uh, what are the applications of this in our everyday life? What, what difference does it make that the Father loves us? Well, I would say the difference that it makes is that we stop doing everything to try to get God to like us because God already likes us. And it seems like a paradox because in most places in life, we think um, that kicking someone in the pants or slapping them upside the head is how we get people motivated, right? But the gospel actually motivates us by love. God loves you. He delights in you. You have the Father's approval through Christ. Therefore, go and be free. Therefore, live your life in accordance with what he says. Therefore, believe that what he says is right. No longer do the things in your life to earn his approval, but do them knowing that he approves of you. Therefore, you're free to actually live out what he's asked you to do. You don't have to worry when crazy things happen in your life like, oh no, God's mad at me. No, God loves you through Christ. So listen to him, follow him, figure out what his word says. There's a theological term for this called the third use of the law. Uh, The third use of the law means... um, the other two uses uh, talk, are talked a lot about in church of, you know, the, um, the law restraining evil and then the other use of the law showing us that we can't perfectly fulfill the law, right? Showing us our need for Christ. But the third use of the law is that we would actually obey it because we think God is trustworthy. The, the third use of the law is that we would actually begin to believe that God's good, that he loves us, and so we would think, wow, maybe I should actually do what he says. Maybe he's right. Maybe he has my joy in mind more than I do. So I would start wanting to listen to his law and follow his law, not to win his approval, but because I've got his approval. His approval, the grace that he shows me through Jesus, would transform my heart and my mind so that I would begin to want to do what God says. And that's a completely different way of seeing God. So I'd encourage you to to no longer do things to try to win God's approval. No longer try to succeed at work so that you can finally prove that you're worth it. But succeed at work because you know that God loves you and he wants you to share his grace with others. He wants you to share the gifts that you've been given with others. And sometimes that's difficult, right? Sometimes he asks us to do weird things that don't make sense in our life. And a lot of times a big issue in our culture right now is human sexuality, Right? Because a lot of people just cannot believe that what God says about sexuality could be true. And that's really based on not trusting God. Right? If God is good and he loves us, then he knows better than we do about how to live our life. So it may not seem pleasant. may not seem comfortable. 
But if he's really good, if he's really gracious, if he really loves us, which I would argue he's proved to us through Jesus, then we can take him at his word and we can adjust our life to live our life according to his boundaries, to his moral law, to what he says in scripture. And so again, we we don't do that to say, look at us, we're the good people, they're the bad people. We do it because we know that we're sinners like everybody else, but that he's graciously propitiated for our sin. He's pleased with us because of what Jesus has done. He's He's paid for our sin, and he's pleased with us, and he loves us. Therefore, we, we know he's gracious, we know he's kind, and we'll want to live according to what he says, because he's trustworthy, he's good. The, the next thing that we see that I think is important here is John kind of ramps up his language is that your father is changing you. Your father is changing you. It's important to know culturally that, that fathers uh, make culture. Fathers make culture. Um, without moms, kids wouldn't exist, right? So we don't want to belittle the mom's role. The mom's role is very important. Uh, mothers nurture. Uh, mothers give life. Mothers keep the children alive, right? A lot of you moms are like, yeah, if, my, if I left my kids with my husband, it would be pretty dangerous, right? But, but men, the way they're wired, shape kids, sometimes take kids into risky areas, right? But, but shape and make culture, Another way to say it in the text is that fathers change people. Fathers redirect. Let's look at what the text says in verse 2. Your father is changing you. Verse 2 says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And so this is that future that we look forward to, right? So that in Romans 8, it says, we're all longing Uh, for the sons of God to be revealed, right? We're all longing for God to finally fix everything. We'll refer to this as as heaven, or we'll refer to this as the the, uh, blessed hope, right? The return of Jesus. We we all talk about this future where God's going to tie everything up, wickedness will be judged, and the righteous will be in heaven with God, and we won't be sinners anymore. We'll, We'll be glorified. We'll be perfected in God's presence. So there's a final day that we look forward to, and John describes it here as, Uh, We know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. So there's this transformation that we're looking forward to taking place. It's hard for us to imagine, right? We're selfish people and we look forward to this future where we won't be selfish anymore. We'll love perfectly when when we're in his presence. It says in verse three, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. So he's saying, if you have this hope, that God is going to finally fix you, then you'll purify yourself. You'll actually work on that in your own life. So those two things aren't in conflict, right? It's not like there's the people over here that work on becoming more like Christ, and then there's the people over here that just coast and don't do anything. He's saying, actually, if you over here trust that God's going to do it, you're going to be like this person over here, and you're going to work to try to make those changes take place. Not thinking you can really do it on your own, but trusting that God's doing it, that he's at work, that he's going to finish what he started, so that'll cause you to want to work on things in your life, to want to be changed because you know he's changing you. He goes on in verse 4, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sin, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. 
He's stating real clearly here that you can't, you can't be stuck in sin. You can't continue on in sin saying, God doesn't care. It's okay to sin and still be one of his. He says that there's, there's a difference there. Now, this doesn't mean that we don't fall into sin, right? All who love him still stumble. We still fall into sin. We still make mistakes. John's made that real clear, right? First John 1, 8 and 9, he makes it real clear. None of us can say we don't have any sin, right? We have sin. We confess that he's faithful and just to cleanse us, forgive us from all unrighteousness. He said later on, little children, I'm, I'm writing you so you won't sin anymore. Don't sin. But if you do sin, you have an advocate. You have the propitiation of Jesus, right? So our sin is taken care of by what Jesus does. What he's talking about are these false teachers that are saying, it doesn't matter what you do. You can sin all you want. You don't have to keep the law. It doesn't, doesn't matter. Do, do what you want to. He's saying, no, no, we're supposed to live moral lives. We're supposed to live in accordance with what God has asked us to do. The, the issue is we just have to understand that our righteousness is not a righteousness of our own. It's a gifted righteousness. We trust in the righteousness that he gives us. And he is purifying us. I have a picture here of purification with gold. Gold is being melted down. Uh, and that's the way a lot of metals are purified, right? You can melt them and then uh, the different parts that are inside it will separate and so that you can have more pure gold and then the junk that's in it, if you find it raw out of the ground, right, is separated out. And a lot of times in Scripture, this is used as an image for God purifying us. God purifies us in oftentimes what feels like a, a fiery, hot process. Sometimes it's painful for us. But again, we have to trust that our Father loves us, that our Father is changing us for our own good, that he really is good and he really will refine us. And again, I want to stress verse 3. He says, everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. If you really hope that, that Jesus loves you, that Jesus is changing you, then you're going to work on that in your own life. You're going to, you're going to take steps to purify and uh, put behind you the sin that you still struggle with. So what does that look like? What is the process of purification? First of all, we looked at this in First John 1, 8, and 9. First of all, it's just dealing with it with, with God, talking to God about it, right? Confessing your sin to God, saying, God, I, I know I'm a sinner. Uh, will you help me? Will you forgive me? Will you cleanse me? Is what it says in First John uh, 9, that he's going to cleanse us. He's going to purify us from our sin. So trust him, ask him, talk to him about it. The other thing is what we talked about from James 5.18. It says, do that in community with other people. It says, confess your sins one to another. Pray for each other that you may be healed. So we talk about this all the time, that you need to be involved in missional community with other people, right? Not just serendipitous community where, eh, we like the same movies, we hang out. That, that's nice. That's a good starting place. But missional community where you're trying to follow Jesus on mission, you're praying for each other. You're helping each other obey Jesus. You're helping each other apply the word in your life. So that may look like just a buddy that you would grab uh, to, to pray with, to have coffee with, say, hey, pray with me, help me. These are issues I'm struggling with. Can you help me? Can you pray for me? It may also look like one of our uh, formal groups, right? We have Bible studies, prayer groups where we gather. We have uh, Celebrate Recovery that meets on Monday nights, and it's designed uh, with extra structure to help people that are stuck in a rut with, with hurts, habits, hang-ups. It's designed to give you that structure you need to come alongside you to help you do First John 1, 8, and 9, to help you do James 5, 18. And so we have these structures in place. You can, like I said, you can do that informally by grabbing a friend or you can join one of these classes, but that should be an application. If your hope is in Jesus, you should purify yourself. 
you should seek to be holy. You shouldn't listen to the false teachers that say you can go on sinning. You can be lawless. You can do whatever you want to. It doesn't matter. That's, that's not true. John says it's not true. Those are false teachers. The other application that I want to make out of this, knowing that our father is changing us, is I want to challenge you who are fathers. Because dads, it's, it's easy to coast. It's easy to be the expert at work. And then because you're not the expert at home, your wife is, it's easy to just coast. It's like, men, we like our, we like our egos to be encouraged. We, you know, we come home, our wife knows the kids better than us. They know the house better than us. It's easy to just kind of sit back and not do anything. And I would say that your job as a father is to change the culture of your home, is to lead your home to follow Jesus, to help purify your kids. So ask for your wife's help, right? You know she's smarter than you. You know she knows the home better than you do. Ask for her help. Enlist her support. Say, honey, help me to do this, but don't just sit back and be passive. Don't just not do anything. Recognize that your, your heavenly father is changing you and purifying you and your role as a father should reflect that. You should be leading your family towards holiness, leading your family towards Jesus. Just a couple of simple suggestions, guys. A couple of places to start. One is if you want your kids to succeed in life, you need to read to them. Just statistically, that's one of the hugest things you could do. You need to read to them. I mean, you might want to back up before that and uh, discipline them and talk to them too, right? But just a we're assuming you're doing some of those things also, but, but read to them. This is one thing a lot of guys miss. Just read to them. All kinds of stuff. Just read. That helps them in their education. It actually helps kids be better readers if people read to them. A lot of people don't realize that. The other thing is, more specifically, spiritually lead them. Read the scriptures. So read other things, but also make sure you're reading the Bible to your kids. We promote some great story Bibles, right? Like the big picture story Bible is a good one if your kids are younger. The Jesus Storybook Bible is a good one if your kids are younger. Or if they're older, just, just reading the scripture to them. But read to your kids. And again, guys, I understand. Like, like generally, our, our wives are just better at that than us, right? They're, they're just better at that. But your kids need to hear your voice. You, you need to be leading in the home. So I want to challenge you to step up and start leading in the home. Those are a couple of practical things you can do. I've got a list of about 50 other if you want to talk to me later, so... The last thing I want us to see is that our father is at war. The, the language continues to step up, right? He's kind of increasing uh, the, uh, he's amping it up, right? He, he starts off saying our father loves us. Then he says our father is purifying us, changing us. And now we're seeing that there's a war happening. There's a spiritual war that we are in the middle of. And we want to make sure we're on the right side of the war. So let's look at verse 7. It says, little children, let no one deceive you. Right? So there's deception. There are going to be people trying to deceive you and take you the wrong direction. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. So to don't fall for the shell game of like, well, since Jesus forgave us, then it doesn't matter what we do. No, he's saying, no, the point is, like I said earlier, to stop sinning, to start doing the right thing. We need his grace. We can't do it on our own. We need his help. But don't let people deceive you and say that it doesn't matter what you do. You should live righteously. Verse 8 says, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. It's nice that he rhymed that, right, for the emphasis, okay? I don't think it actually rhymed in the original Greek. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. 
Saying like, that's, that's why Jesus came to, to destroy his work, to fight, to wage war against what the devil is doing in the world. And we need to take that seriously. We need to understand that. The, the word appeared is a word in Greek uh, that would be used in uh, the mythic stories, the Hercules-type stories, the hero stories uh, of a hero that appears on the scene, uh, a hero who shows up, right? Um, a word we would use in English maybe that would be like a story cue in your mind is he swoops in, right? You would think of kind of like a hero swooping in to save the day. That's the kind of word here. I mean, it's really just a common word. I mean, appear is, it's a simple word that means appear, but that was just often used in these hero stories. If the hero appeared and he killed the bad guys, he kicked the bad guys' butt. It's saying Jesus appeared, he swooped in to destroy the work of the devil. He goes on to say in verse 9, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. So he's, he's saying now there's something inside you that even if you get caught up in the wrong side of this war and you are sinning, you can't keep going. It eats away at you because you know you belong to God. You know you're his, and you can't keep it up. You may try it for a while, but he's got you. You're his. It says his seed is in you. His word is in you. You belong to him. You can't keep going down that path. You're going to run out of steam and say, I can't do this anymore. I've got to walk with God. I've got to listen to him. I've got to obey him. He says in verse 10, By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So he says, Sure, there's going to be confusion. There's going to be the gray, murky stuff, right? There's going to be people that belong to God that are going to sin, but they can't keep on. They can't keep doing it. And there's going to be people that don't belong to God that are going to disguise themselves as if they're a part of the community of faith, but they, they can't keep it up. They'll appear. We saw that last week. He's saying, overall, there's going to be this clear track record of people who do righteousness and people that sin, people who love their brother and people that hate each other. And it's going to be manifest, and the war is going to become clear. And we're going to know who belongs to who. We're going to know whose children they are. My children genetically have some of my traits, right? Sometimes when people see my son, they're like, oh, I can't believe how much he looks like you. And it's amazing, which is, which is kind of fun. I took a picture here of my eye. That's my eyeball, close up. <laughs> kind of hard to see with the nose in the way there, but that's my eye on the right side. And then here's a picture of my son's eye. Now, my son has brown eyes like I do. My wife has blue eyes. So my son got that genetic trait, right? But he doesn't look exactly like me. I, I actually, when I was talking with my wife about this the other day, his eyes are actually shaped like my wife, but his eyes are brown like mine. And, and you could get real sidetracked with uh, physical characteristics. And you could start to think that that's the important thing, but... I want you to understand that I don't take pride in my children looking like me. I mean, maybe it's, it's fun, but, but I'm not saying, gosh, the, the legacy more than any other that I hope to pass on is brown eyes. I look forward to generations of brown-eyed children filling this earth, right? That, that's, that's really not the idea. My hope is that I would pass on other traits. And this makes sense that when we understand that we're not we're not actually genetically children of God. We're adopted by God, right? And so you're not passing on eye color. 
Being the children of God doesn't mean I have a certain color of skin. Being the children of God doesn't mean I speak a certain language. Being the children of God means I listen to him. I love him. I do what's right. I love other people. They're these spiritual traits that God passes on to us as his children. And that's the legacy that we're called on to pass on as well. We're called to leave that mark. And so I just want you to think about this. You've, you've all grown up in different places, right? You grew up speaking maybe different languages, definitely having different cultures depending on the families that you come from. You have families that are more outgoing, more introverted. You have families that are more artistic, families that are more engineer families. You have different gifts. You have different talents. God's calling you to pass on his love and his righteousness through that lens of different cultures. So whether or not you have brown eyes or blue eyes, God wants you to follow him. God wants you to reflect his righteousness, pass on that legacy. Not pass on sin, but pass on righteousness and love for your brother. That's what we are to pass on. That's how we are to display that we're belonging to him and that we're a part of this war that he's engaged in. We are to be a part of this war. He's at war with the devil. He's at war with sin. And we should recognize the war that our Heavenly Father is engaged in, and we should join him in that war. We should join him in his movement. Luke 11 is a parallel to the verse I read earlier in Matthew 7 where it talks about understanding the the Heavenly Father that loves us. In Luke 11, he says, I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for fish, will give instead a, of a fish a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, he'll give him a scorpion. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Ask him, and he'll help you. He'll, he'll join you. He, he'll empower you to join the fight. He'll empower you to trust that he loves you. He'll empower you to purify yourself, to be at work changing yourself because you recognize the hope that you have that he's changing you. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you that you do love us. And I pray that you would help us to be a community that lives in line with you. Lord, you know we're weak. You know we struggle. You know we're tempted and lured to other gods, to other saviors. Help us to recognize that you're the one that loves us and help us to listen to you and to follow you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. You may be dismissed. If if you have any questions, I'll, I'll be up front. Or if I haven't met you yet, I'd love to meet you. Thank you.